Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Brute Force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softweb Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the Guys in the Community. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio, Soft Rep Radio on Time on Target. I am your host this afternoon, Steve Balistrieri. We have a very special guest with us, Colin Cahoon. He's an author, a former uh, Army helicopter pilot. He's the author of three books, and we're going to be talking about his latest book, which is um, it's titled Mended Wings, the Vietnam War Experience Through the Eyes of Ten. American Purple Heart helicopter pilots, uh, folks. I'm I'm gonna, you know, just preface this right off the bat. This is one of those page turners that you can't put down, 
And I, I was speaking offline with Colin before we started, and I told him I was very disappointed in the book that there wasn't a chapter 11. So uh, with that said, we're going to welcome him to the podcast. Colin, thanks for taking the time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Steve. It's my honor to be here. I appreciate you having me. Oh, it's it's our honor. Trust me. And uh, so before we get started in the book, tell us a little, our listeners, a little bit about yourself, your background, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into the book itself. Sure. Uh, so I uh, was commissioned in the Army, a regular Army commission in 1983 after I graduated from college at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And um, from there, they didn't have an aviation branch at the time. So I had to get a carrier branch. I went to Air Defense Artillery Officer Basic Course in Fort Bliss. Then I went to flight school at uh, what we refer to as Mother Rucker, if you're a, a pilot, Fort Rucker, Alabama. <laughs> I graduated in, in 84 and then uh, was assigned to the 7th Infantry Division at Fort Ord, California. I flew in the 307th Attack Helicopter Battalion, where I was an Aero Scout platoon leader. So I, I flew uh, primarily OH-58s as a scout. And then uh, towards the end of that uh, assignment, I was uh, assigned to a, a VIP unit where I flew white top Hueys, flying, uh, you know, generals and congressmen around. And then, then I got out. I did a, a year in the guard while I was in law school, but eventually graduated from law school and and went on to have a career as a patent lawyer before I retired and, and started writing books. So that's where I am. I'm I'm now I'm now a full time author. Yeah. Uh... You, you said Mother Rucker. Um, I went to the Warren Officer Candidate course down there uh, because that's where uh, guys who were going to the Warrant Branch for Special Forces, they sent us all down there and they put us in with all the aviation students. So, uh, you know, you had a, a bunch of uh, young kids that were just out of high school, high school to flight school guys. And then there was yeah. uh, half a dozen Special Forces guys and and one or two other uh, MOSs, um, one guy was like a nuclear weapons tech, and everyone was leery of him because they were wondering if he didn't brought any with him. But, yeah, that was uh, it wasn't a fun <laughs> time down there in Fort Rucker. So, you know, the uh, best, uh, I guess the less we say about that, the best it is. But, yeah, um, well, as I told like you offline. You got all uh, the bad part and didn't have the fun. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, one of the guys I served with in Special Forces, he was going through uh, the aviation school uh, while we were there. He had left a couple of months ahead, so he was already flying when I got there. And uh, I got to talk to him every afternoon in the chow hall, and he was very excited. And I, I was pretty miserable during that time. So, uh, but again, it's all, you know we, you know that was the. Uh, decision we chose so we had to live with it but yeah hats off to the helicopter pilots that's all i'll say but getting to the book um how did you come about you know the idea that you were going to write this yeah so when i was in flight school back in 1984 the uh, civilian flight instructors who did most of the, the, the primary and the basic part of the course uh, were all um, Vietnam vets. 
And so I got to know these guys. Uh, they were, you know, I, I, I used the term, they're the coolest cats I'd ever met. I mean, they were just absolutely unflappable, very professional. And we used to walk out to the flight line and, and sometimes you'd see an old helicopter sitting out there. And we were up flying all the old uh, Huey Warbirds from Vietnam. And you could you could tell that they had been damaged because they would put these little square patches over the bullet holes. And the fuselages <laughs> were just spreckled with these these little patches. And you'd some some mornings you'd walk out because you never knew what aircraft you'd get. And some instructor would look at it and say, oh, you know, 647. Yeah, that's that's the aircraft I flew when I was stationed outside of Da Nang or, you know, whatever he was going to say. And I, I just, you know, I, at that point, I started thinking somebody needs to, to write a story about these guys. It, they've got amazing stories to tell. I then went on to Fort Ord and all the senior warrants uh, were all Vietnam vets. All the field grade officers were vets. These are the guys. These are my heroes. These are the guys I look to, up to. I'm sure, Steve, you had a similar experience when you first got in. You had a certain generation that were your heroes. And, um, uh, you know, they taught me how to be the best Army helicopter pilot I could be. They taught me how to be the best officer, Army officer I could be. And I just respected them. And I've always wanted to do a book about them. And I came up with the angle about Purple Hearts because a friend of mine was a Vietnam vet. He had a Purple Heart. And I thought, well, that's an interesting angle. And I, I really kind of had to step out of genre to do this, Steve, because my other two books are completely different. They are fiction you know, the historical fiction, but they're still fiction. But I just, I thought, if you're going to write this book that you've wanted to do ever since flight school, you need to just do it because I wanted to honor the Vietnam vet helicopter pilots and I wanted to do it while they're still with us uh, because we're going to start losing that that generation. And, and I felt like now is the time to do it. It's interesting because... Uh... Yeah, I entered the military a, a few years before you in 1980. And like you, uh, the, the Vietnam vets, uh, the guys who, you know, I was going through special forces training. So those guys, you know, we had all read books about the stuff they did. And we looked at them like they were on this pedestal. And, and uh, yeah, at, at that time, all the senior NCOs and officers were all Vietnam vets. And you know, that's somebody that I, I totally agree with. We all looked up to, I mean, those guys had a ton of experience. And it's funny you mentioned the, you know, the old warbirds at Fort Rucker because my friend who was in flight school was telling me the same thing. He had a civilian instructor and said, hey, I flew this baby back in Nam. He's like, look at the tail because the tail had a bunch of those little square patches on it. And he goes, yeah, yeah. we almost got shot down a few times. This and and it's just, it's an amazing story. And then to read the history of these guys, like I said to, at the outset, uh, when you open this book, you immediately get hooked on it and you start turning the pages and, you know, you keep saying, man, I hope there's another chapter at the end of this one. And I hope there's another <laughs> chapter after that. The stories on these guys were incredible. Um, so, you know, how did you come about, I guess, narrowing it down to just 10 of these guys. Yeah. So, you know, that's a great question because you, so you're going to write a book about uh, Vietnam helicopter pilots. How do you, how do you go about doing that? And there is an organization called the Vietnam helicopter pilots association, VHPA. In fact, I was out at their conference uh, a few weeks ago, a great bunch of guys, and they have a 
quarterly, or it's actually every two month magazine that comes out, it's called The Aviator. And so I didn't know what else to do, but just put an ad in there and just say, hey, did, did, did you get a Purple Heart while flying combat in Vietnam? That was gonna be the criteria. And if so, would you be interested in letting me tell your story? And I had about, uh, I don't know, 20 guys that I, I would say, go to my website. They'd go to the website. There was a video of me telling them about, at the time I called it the Purple Heart Project because I didn't have a name for the book yet. And, and I'd say, fill out this application. And about 20 guys filled it out. And then I had some follow-up interviews. And, you know, some guys begged off once they kind of heard what we were doing. Some guys just weren't a good fit. And eventually I got it down. I, I figured I needed, uh, you know, you're always thinking about uh, the end product. And so, you know, I, I knew for books really to be legitimate need to come in at, at about 60 to 90,000 words, somewhere in that range. And so I thought, well, I think I can tell each guy's story in about six to 8,000 words, I think. I hadn't tried it yet, but so that means I need 10 guys. And so I ended up with the 10 guys that are in the book. And this is just uh, surreptitious, really, Steve. I'd like to say I planned this, but I, I've got an agent who represents this book. And when he was going through an earlier draft, he said, uh, you know, Colin, this has got to be in chronological order. And you can use this as a tool to tell the story of the Vietnam War. And so the, I started rearranging the chapters. I put them in chronological order and oh my gosh, like I said, it was surreptitious. Uh, the first guy, they're, they're arranged in the order that they were injured. That's the way Mended Wings is set up. And the mm -hmm. first guy was injured as you saw in 1966 as the war is just starting to ramp up. And the last guy is injured at the end of 1972 when there just aren't many Americans left except for air crews. That's that's about it. And so we've got the whole war covered. And that's when we came up with the concept of, well, let's put a little historical bridge between each chapter for people that aren't that familiar with the Vietnam War. They can kind of get a sense for it. And uh, it just it just all kind of fell into place. And then, of course, we're, we're not going to give away the, the surprise in the last chapter. Right, Steve? We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, but there is... There is, a, there is a surprise in the last chapter and, chapter, and again, that was just serendipitous as well, the way all that sort of lined up with my visit to Vietnam and one of the battlefields and getting to know the families. So the, the whole book just sort of just came together from, from my perspective just as, as well as I, I could have hoped. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because uh, I didn't realize it until after I had read it that it was chronological because – you, you kind of taken each chapter as its own separate story. And it wasn't until after I had finished the book, I realized that, yeah, I didn't know if you had, uh, you know, envisioned that, I guess, uh, to, to put it, you know, one step at a time. But it started off and the book hooks you right away because Pruitt Elm is your first story. And his story yeah. was really interesting. And, uh, I don't know. I don't want to give too much away because we want our listeners to buy the book. But can you talk a little bit about meeting these guys and talking to them about their story, especially him to start off with? Yeah. And in fact, let's let's do this, uh, Steve. I'll, I'll give a little taste of Pruitt just so that folks can get an idea of what Mended Wings, how it's structured. Um, but, you know, at, it, we start each chapter with them. And I love the way you put it when we were offline heading towards their penultimate uh you know, their penultimate doom, I guess. 
and they're they're in the aircraft headed towards getting injured and that's so our Pruitt Helm is in his Huey C model gunship and they're escorting a bunch of lift ships and they're headed towards an insertion because there's a special forces unit that's about to get overrun and so they're sending in the grunts to save the day and uh, as the, the, he, they fly into what, what I would describe really as a, an anti-aircraft ambush. And their Huey model, uh, C model Huey is, flies through the, the kill zone, comes out the other end. It is smoking badly. It's really badly shot up. And I think you and I would both agree these guys had every right to just head for, the, head for home at that point. But as I'm sure you've seen over and over again in the, the U.S. military, they felt like they had a job to do and that was protect the men on the ground. And so they turned back around and they headed back towards the kill zone. And as they're headed that direction, the aircraft in front of them blows up in a ball of fire. And so that's where we stop. And then we go back and we talk about his childhood and growing up in Colorado. And <laughs> I'm, again, I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but he has a very interesting childhood, sort of typical of that generation. We take him all the way up through flight school, some fun stuff he did in Korea, all the way back through Vietnam. And then we keep working forward after he's uh, been. And the, the story of him, what happens after he's shot down, it truly is uh, phenomenal and, and, a, and a very surreal rescue and then how he overcomes his injuries. He, he's an amazing guy, led an amazing life. And that's where I want to leave each reader at the end of each chapter, is you get to take all the way up to, uh, he's, he's retired today in Montana. You know, you just go all the way through his whole life story. But, but to your original question, you know, what was it like working with these guys? This, um, I, I think a, a, a couple of points. One is, I think because I was a helicopter pilot, it gave me the ability to, to talk their language, just like I'm sure when you interview Special Forces guys, uh, even if you're not in their generation, I, I think they, they feel like they can, they can speak a certain way to you and you'll get it. Uh, and so that was sort of a, a starting point. The other thing is, and this won't surprise you because I think we're about the same age, Steve, but... Um, our generation and really even more so their generation, that's a phone generation, right? They, they like to communicate by phone. They're not really comfortable with video. And so I would just start off with, after we did the initial interviews, uh, I, had, I insisted that all these guys send me pictures because there's pictures in the book. And the only way I could leverage to get those pictures to say, I'm not going to start your interview till I get your pictures. And once I got somebody's pictures, I'd, I'd put them in slot for <clears throat> doing an interview. Because that's hard for those guys, because a lot of those guys, these pictures were, were slides that they, people forget that, you know, those slides that you put in the projector. And that's how you did a lot of those pictures. <laughs> and, and a lot of them had, had sort of thrown out their Vietnam stuff or their parents had or whatever. So eventually I'd, I'd get their picture. I'd set up some phone interviews. And then I would do at least three and sometimes four phone interviews with each guy. Each interview lasted between two and three hours. So you can do the math it, between six and 12 hours really of interviews for each guy. Really got to know him. And then if I could, I would talk to other pilots that they knew. I talked to family members. I did research. Uh, I, you know, I went to Vietnam, visited places, got as much information as I could. And then um, when the chapter was done in draft form, I would send it to him and say, what do you think? And it uh, was interesting because a lot of these mended wing vets, 
uh, wouldn't get back to me for four to six weeks sometimes. And they eventually they would call and they'd say something, a typical conversation would say, you know, Colin, I'm sorry I didn't get back to you sooner. I want you to know that uh, the good news is you, you really nailed the chapter. I think you did an excellent job in telling my story and representing who I am. Um, the bad news is when I read it, it was like ripping a scab off. And it's just taken me a while to get my head around uh, these facts because, quite frankly, I've never seen it laid out like this. And then they proceed to tell me that, you know, there are some things in here that I haven't even told my wife. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm just struggling with should we tell the world? And then we'd have a discussion about, well, you know, first of all, you, you need to tell your wife, you know, have her read the chapter. I want her looped into this process. But secondly, would you please think about the fact that we are telling a story in this book, Mended Wings, about your generation of pilots. That's really the purpose of the book. And I would like people to understand what you guys went through. And I know this is painful. I know it's painful <clears throat> to you, but people aren't going to understand unless these stories come out. So let's consider that. And usually we, we'd leave it in, you know, we'd figure a way how to leave those painful things in. That's, that's very interesting because, you know, um, you know, reading through the book, each, each person had their own story. They were all very different. I, I really like the other one about the, uh, the crew chief's premonition. I thought that was a really good chapter. Uh, I didn't know where they were going with that and yeah, or where you were going with that and how it was going to end up. I thought that was a really interesting uh, story. But, you know, it, it's each guy I thought was really pretty different, but they all had that love of aviation. And, you know, that's what tied all the book together, obviously being helicopter pilots. But, you know, the, as we said offline, um, it starts off, you know, right as the war is ramping up and then through the heavy part of the fighting in the, you know, probably 67 to 69. And then things start to, you know, uh, I guess Vietnamization took place and the U.S. is gradually pulling out. And then, you know, the, the final chapters of the book about the only guys in combat were a handful maybe of special forces guys and helicopter pilots. That was it. And the, the feeling amongst those guys was really different, wasn't it, at that point? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things you get to see through this book is the progression of the war and how certainly air crews, uh, their, their roles in the war changed, their attitudes changed. You know, the race relations start to ramp up towards the end. They get worse. Uh, and the way they fought the battles changed. We went from a... And, and for, you know, for our vets out there, these terms are going to make sense. But we went from a low intensity conflict where we're really doing kind of a guerrilla war to uh, at the end, a medium intensity conflict where we're fighting conventional forces and, and they've got very sophisticated weapons. And you're right. In 1972, uh, you know, we talk about he's a, our last veteran is Michael Byrne, who I figured he might. You might have a soft spot for him just because it's his earlier special forces tour. You know, he did a <laughs> he did a really a tour and a half right. in special forces before they'd even let him let him get into flight school. I thought that was kind of a nasty trick to tell him he had to, to, to stay on to get into flight school. But anyway, he was willing <laughs> to do it. And for him, uh, just like all the guys in 72, when they're flying around, if they got shot down, uh, they're 
there, there's a there's a chase Huey behind you, a command command and control Huey behind you. But if that aircraft can't get to you, you're you're toast. You're either going to get killed or captured because they're just there's no there's no friendlies, there's no Americans um, that they're going to be able to send to rescue you at that point. So it was a very very different war. Yeah, and uh, you know it's like for the helicopter pilots, you know, the, in the in the past they always knew there was large American units nearby where if they went down, guys are going to come rescue them. They didn't have that warm and fuzzy feeling with the uh, South Vietnamese military, which you can probably draw a lot of comparisons to what's just transpired, you know, recently in Afghanistan, where a lot of uh, the military didn't have a high, uh, I guess, goodwill toward, well, not goodwill, but confidence in our allies. Yeah. Well, and you, you, I know you and I could probably do a whole show on, on parallels between Vietnam and Afghanistan, and that's all unfortunate. But, uh, but I did want to, you, you did uh, talk about one point that it may have struck you when you read it, but it actually struck me when I wrote it. I, when I set out to write Mended Wings, uh, Steve, for some reason I had in my head that all these guys were going to be kind of the same. Their stories would be roughly the same. And I was thinking it was going to be a task to be able to distinguish and make 10 different interesting chapters. I don't know why I had that thought uh, because I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, they, they do have, I, I will say they all have some sort of unifying characteristics. One is they all love fast cars. I mean, for some reason, you know, they were all driving Corvettes and Mustangs and, and that just seemed to fit yeah. their character. Uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of them really didn't care for academics. They, none of them were really, you know, excelled from a scholarship standpoint. It wasn't because they weren't smart. They were all smart guys. They just, they had other, you know, they, they were more interested in, in cars and girls and stuff like that. And they just, they just didn't do that. Um, and outside of that, they, they are all extremely different. I mean, each, their personalities, their experiences, We've got all the different kind of aircraft in here in Mended Wings. Uh, you know, we got guys flying loaches, flying Cobras, flying Hueys, uh, doing all kinds of different jobs in the cab or lift pilots or, or that kind of thing. And their injuries are all completely different. As, as you noticed, uh, some of these guys were, were hurt very badly. You know, our, um, our Chapter 2 vet, Mike Bongart, who, by the way, I got to meet in person three weeks ago down at VHPA. He's 80 years old and he still, he goes, he walks seven to eight miles a day, sharp, sharp as a tack, even though when he was injured, uh, he had a brain injury. Uh, you know, they removed part of his occipital lobe. And um, he's, his story, of course, is very unique because he had some out of body experiences uh, during the whole thing. So it, it, uh, it turned out to be uh, really a, a very amazing experience for me writing the book. And I'm delighted that I was able to put this book together, Mended Wings, as a tribute to the guys that, as I said at the beginning of the show, were really kind of my heroes. And, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to do this. Yeah, another interesting character in the book was, uh, as you put it, Bro Clyde. Uh, he was the only, uh, well, they, they, they treated him like a African American, but he really wasn't. He was like Latin American, but 
the military yeah. treated him as an African-American. And he had a whole different, uh, I guess, experience because he was dealing with other things besides, you know, being a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. Yeah, well, Clyde Romero was, grew up as basic, basically a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. And mm -hmm. um, so, like you say, when, when he gets into the Army, he's basically told in, in, in some, some words that, uh, that I did use in the book because he insisted, but I'm not going to use on your podcast. But they pretty much just told him, hey, you, you're, hey you're, a, you're a black guy whether you like it or not. And so he sort of adopted that. And so he became a black guy. And as, as we relate in the book, there, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of blacks in uh, the flight program for, for whatever reasons at the time. And so that put him in a kind of a unique situation. And, and we, we talk about the things that he experienced. And um, he's he's a very interesting character as well. I just I, I love him to death. And uh, all these all the black guys that 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 we talk about, including Bro Clyde, our Clyde Romero, they all served with tremendous pride for the United States. I mean, they, I think their attitude was, uh, yeah, I might be, I might be black. I may be different. You might treat me a little bit differently, but when the chips are down by God, it doesn't matter who you are or who I am. Uh, I'm, I'm there. We're all on the same team. And, and I, I think that that was true by and large in the aviation units. I don't really have much experience outside of that, but I think they maintained their their racial cohesion a lot more than some of the ground units, uh, where some of the tensions got a little bit higher uh, towards the end. That's that's my understanding. Again, I don't have a lot of experience with that. Yeah, you know, and uh, in dealing with these guys, now you're interviewing them obviously many years after the fact, but they all seem through their words that they're all pretty humble guys. Yes. And this is, and I've been asked this before about the difference between Vietnam vets and say the, the previous generation. And I think that that's a really interesting distinction to make because I know just from social settings, primarily a lot of World War II vets and they rightfully are very proud of what they did. Uh, they will tell you about the things they went through um, you know, it's maybe not a Marine who was on Guadalcanal or something, but by and large, these guys will, will tell you about their military experiences. And to this day, those that are still with us are, are proud about it and rightfully so. And they came back from overseas with a swagger to them. Uh, and I think that's all good and that's right. And they may be called the greatest generation, but uh, I, I like to, well, my phrase for the Vietnam generation is the forgotten generation because they came home to a totally different experience. And as we mentioned in um, uh, Eddie Hester's chapter, when he comes back from Vietnam, uh, he's seen some terrible things. And we won't go into those details, but he's walking through LAX and a guy walks up and spits on him. And I don't think that was a unique experience. And so as a result, uh, our Vietnam vets, they are a much more humble group. And I think that for years and years and years, not only did they feel like that they, they, they weren't welcome to talk about their experiences, they felt like if in, 
to anybody but maybe their deepest, darkest, you know, confidants, they, they would get um, abused for bringing up their Vietnam experiences. And so they, I think they hid them away, they tucked them away. And it's only now that, you know, within the, I, I don't know, what would you say, Steve, maybe the last 10 years that we finally accepted them. We're finally starting to say, welcome home. We're finally starting to say, mm -hmm. thank you for your service. And we're saying, we don't blame you, no matter how we felt about the war. Uh, we don't blame you. You did your you you did your service to your country, and that's another thing that that I wanted to accomplish when I set out writing Mended Wings, was this is really my um, my homage to to these guys to this generation of pilots. It's a way for for me to introduce them to people who didn't understand what they went through, and and that was one of the things I set out to do, so that uh, so that everybody can start to have a better appreciation of just what they went through, what they sacrificed, what their families sacrificed, because there's some of that in the book as well. And um, so that we can turn to a Vietnam vet and, and tell that vet, welcome home, good job, you know, thank you for your service. Yeah, it, it's funny you mention that because uh, I, you know, when I was living up north, I belonged to a local veterans council. And we had the VFW, the American Legion guys, all tied in together. And one of my friends in that was a uh, member of the 101st and 173rd Airborne and did a couple of tours in Vietnam. And he talked about uh, when he came home from his last tour, um, they told him when they were going in L.A. not to wear their uniforms. Yeah. And he was like, the hell with that excuse my language, but he's like, I'm going to wear my uniform. I'm a paratrooper. And he said he got spit on in LAX. So I'm sure. Um, yeah. You know, and when he yeah. got home to our little town in Massachusetts, you know, the, they told him, Hey, make sure you take off your uniform, even around here, you know, even though it's your back home in your hometown, you know, people are very upset with the way the war is going and they ended up blaming the guys who had no blame in it, uh, they weren't making any of the, uh, you know, the decisions to, to get us in or out of Vietnam. They just answered their country's call. And it's it's interesting because the Vietnam vets, you know, they had they never got that welcome home parade. And, and I, to get back to your earlier point, it's probably what just in the past 20, 25 years that that's kind of changed. Yeah, I, I, it's been very slow to change for sure, because even when uh, I know when, when you and I were in the military in the 80s, I, I still I still felt like there was some animosity out there towards people in, in uniform, certainly in per certain parts of the country. Um, you know, when we were I, I went through ROTC uh, before I, I did my, you know, the big green machine uh, actual training and we were discouraged from wearing our uniforms off off campus. And then when I was at Fort Ord, California, I mean, this is in the mid eighties, uh, you were discouraged from wearing your uniform off base because people didn't appreciate the military and you're likely to get uh, some attention drawn to you that, that you didn't want. And it's not just the, you mentioned your guy uh, wearing a uniform through LAX. Back then uh, there was a very easy way to tell who was on one side of the argument and who was on the other, if you were a man. And that is that if you were in the military or recently in the military, your hair was cut very short. 
And everyone else made a point to wear their, very hairy, uh, their hair very long. And so it was very easy to spot uh, vets or soldiers, whether they're in uniform or not. That was kind of the purpose, because they knew that you had to keep your hair short if you were in the military. And so if you, if you didn't want to be thought of as being in the military, you, you grew your hair out long. And, and that's what happened to Eddie Hester when he walked through the airport in LAX. He was not in uniform. It's just he had short hair. And so they made that assumption. But and speaking of Eddie, uh, Steve, I'm just I, I, I kind of figured, you know, when you mentioned that you were in the uh, uh, the walk training at Fort Rucker, Alabama, you, you know, Eddie's the one who who had the story about the candidate frog. And, and I'm sure you probably looked at that story <laughs> and thought, yeah, I, I completely get that. I completely understand how all that happened. I'm just guessing I could be wrong. Yes, uh, I could tell you. Well, I went through uh, warrant officer candidate training with one of my best friends from Special Forces. And this guy, uh, his name was Wade. He was a total character and he took great delight in pushing back against the TAC officers. And like in your book, there's a lot of stories about the TAC officers and how nasty they are and which they are. I mean, I guess that's part of the deal with you know, you getting these kids straight in from high school, that that's probably needed with a bunch of 10, 12 year vets with in special forces. You know, we don't want to hear that. So my buddy Wade was always pushing back and him and this other SF guy named Brian, they decided when we got put on punishment because we weren't scared enough of the TAC officers. So they said, you have to clean all <laughs> the TAC officers, you know, uh, offices. So Brian went down to the PX, and you remember those old Kodak flashbulbs, those uh, little square yeah. cubes you'd put yeah. on the camera to take a picture. So Brian was a yeah. he was a, he he was a, a demolitions expert. So he wired all the TAC officers' desk drawers with these little flash cubes, where when they opened it, it would just pop the flash, and I mean nothing was going to happen to them, but it would just startle <laughs> them. So. He wired all their desks. So, so the next morning, you know, they come in about four o'clock in the morning because they would get us up about 4.15. We're already all dressed. We went to the empty building next door. So it was straight across from the TAC officers. So we're all got our faces planted there and we're watching them. And they all come in. They're shooting a the breeze. And then the one guy sits at his desk. And he opens it and the thing pops. And you see this flash and he jumped out of his desk and you could hear him cussing. So then, the, you know, he's like, he pulls the next drawer open and it goes off. And then they're all sitting there. They're all laughing about it. We're, we were shocked. We thought they'd be angry. They were all laughing. And then they were like, go to your desk. And we're watching them. They're opening it. And something flashes. And then one of the last desks, they had a, a fake rat trap with a big rat in it. Because that was the guy that everyone hated the most. And they were all about rolling on the floor. So we, you know, we're like, okay, here comes formation time for PT. We all walked outside and then they just sat there for like five minutes, not saying a word. And then just staring at all of us. Cause we always in the same spot in the formation. No, they never uttered a word about it. Like, you know, but they just sit there staring at us. And then as we were going to PT, one of the TAC officers, I was one of the road guards. He, he comes running up beside me and he said, you all think you're really effing smart, don't you? <laughs> I was like, sir, 
And he goes, you know what I'm talking about. And he goes, don't worry. We got something planned for you guys. When we came back, they had filled up the drainage ditches with sandbags and they had filled it up with muddy water and they made us all jump in. So like the kids were all worried that, you know, it's all muddy water. We're like, just dive in. So as we're diving in, we're splashing water all over them. And they knew they, they didn't get no traction out of that. So they let us go to breakfast. But <laughs> yeah, they, every day was something with them. And, you know, whether uh, we didn't have a pet frog, but it was like every day was something. And uh, yeah, when I when I read that chapter, I, I got a big chuckle out of it because I think of my friend Wade, who every day did something. And uh, we were always walking uh, that have punishment walks at night. We have to put your dress uniform on and, and march around the compound in a square or something. I forget what they called that, but yeah, yeah, we did lots of hours of that. <laughs> but um, so, um, is there any thought of maybe expanding to a second book with some of the other guys that you interviewed? Um, you know, I, that's a good question. I don't know, Steve. Uh, I, like I said, I had to break genre to kind of write this book. And so, and this one's doing very well. Mended Wings is, is selling well. It's, um, one of the, by the way, I, I think that one of the highest compliments that, that I receive on this book is when the guys who flew aircraft in Vietnam will read it and they'll, they'll email me or they'll call me whatever. And they, and they say, Colin, I don't know how you did this because you weren't there, but this is the most accurate portrayal I've ever read of flying helicopters in Vietnam when I read Mended Wings, and that is ex extremely high praise. So I, I, I'm very pleased with the way this book came out. Where do I, where do I go from here? I, I'm not sure because I do have uh, my first two books were intended as a trilogy. I need to go back and finish those. And then do I come back with another genre similar to this? I'm still trying to figure that out. So if you've got some good ideas, Steve, just, <laughs> just send me, send me an email. But, um, but I, I haven't quite resolved that, that particular issue yet. Yeah. It's funny because um, recently uh, we did an interview with uh, an author that has always written uh, like uh, historical pieces like like yours is and then he had just ventured into his first uh novel where he's writing fiction it was historical fiction and uh, i asked him about it and he said it was really different uh you know going from one genre to the next did you find that uh the same obviously it was opposite for you you had written historical fiction and now you're going into telling a true story did you find that uh tough as well Yes. Yeah, I did. It, it is a tremendous change. The first two books, uh, the first book is called The Man with the Black Box, and the second one is called Charlie Calling. And they are historical fiction, but they're mystery thrillers. So the uh, kind of a, a, sh a short way of describing them is is because there's some, some uh, supernatural stuff in it. It's kind of like Sherlock Holmes chasing Dracula or something. And the thing about fiction, it's the historical fiction side I really enjoy because I'm a history uh, buff. You know, I guess I guess I'm an amateur historian. And so there's a lot of research mm -hmm. involved with that. But when you write a novel, you're just making it up. You know, it's it's uh, 
nobody can tell you what the characters are supposed to be like or what they say or other than, you know, they're, you are, unless they're a historical figure like I have Teddy Roosevelt in both books and some of the, you know, uh, Sir Gray and Lord Lansdowne and some of the British guys. But uh, for me, honestly, Steve, writing fiction, what I found was easier. It was a much more stream of consciousness when you're writing a novel. Mm -hmm. And when you write nonfiction, you got to get it right. And so there's there's a ton of research that goes into it. I knew that there was going to be a lot of helicopter pilots who flew in Vietnam that were reading this book. And I had to make sure it was so accurate that they couldn't find fault with it, you know, that they had to read it and say, yeah, that's, that's what happened. That's, that's what you got. Now, uh, you know, as I point out, if, if you were to, to go to a, a, if you were to witness a car wreck today, if you have 10 witnesses, you get 10 different stories. So I'm trying to write about events that happened more than 50 years ago. And uh, at some point you just kind of have to do the best you can and, and hope that you got the most accurate story you could. But it, it was, I found it to be a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. It took me two years to write the book. And uh, that was pretty much, you know, working on it almost full time just to, to, get, to get it wow. accurate, I guess. So, it, yeah, it was very different. Yeah, that, that was answered my next question. I was going to ask you how long uh, the project took from start to finish. Because obviously you have vets that are living in different parts of the country. I don't know if you actually went and visited with them or just talked telephonically or actually met them in person. But uh, I'm sure it was there yeah, was a most, lot of detail. Most of, them were, over. most of them were over. Yeah, most of them were over the phone. Uh, I did. I, I did. There is one vet in uh, Dallas. My my chapter three vet, Chris Kilgore, who actually Chris, you asked earlier about sort of the inspiration for the book. He's the guy that uh, caused me to, to put the, the purple heart angle into Mended Wings because Chris was a, a purple heart vet and I, and I knew him very well and I, I highly respected him. And so that was sort of my, uh, the inspiration to go that, that way. And I actually interviewed Chris directly and then Chris later sort of became a technical advisor on the book for me uh, because I wanted to have at least one other Vietnam vet other than the guy that I was writing the chapter on to, to sort of vet each chapter and to see if we, we spotted anything. Um, and, you know, Chris is an interesting guy as well. When you read his story and the things that he did, uh, as I mentioned in the book, his, uh, a, a Coast Guard aircraft that Chris flew is now in the Smithsonian and Chris's helmet bag is in that, is in that aircraft from a mission he flew, a very dramatic mission that's detailed in the book as well. Uh, that, that happened, you know, off the coast of Texas, a, a very terrible a maritime accident. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, uh, I was just talking to somebody about the Air and Space Museum up at the Smithsonian, and I was like, well, the next time I go up there, I'm definitely going to have to look for that because you said his helmet is, you have to kind of look for it, but it's in the seat you know, kind of hidden from view. So that's something I'm definitely will look for. And that, but um, um, yeah, this, this book, it, it, you know, for our listeners out there, I can't recommend it enough. It was, like I said, it was a page turner. It, it delves into a very diverse, I guess, 
group of helicopter pilots. They all come from different backgrounds. Um, I guess they're all the one thing that other than the love of flying, which that linked them all together was like, they were kind of adrenaline junkies. They, they liked action sports, maybe not so much team sports, but individual sports. And, you know, when you, when you look at this story and then, as you said, some of the vets that reached out to you, I, I encourage all of our listeners again, check out this book, Mended Wings, because it tells some horrific stories of what these guys went through. And it, it was, it's very moving. And it's like I said, when I got to chapter 10, I was very disappointed in the book because it wasn't a chapter 11. <laughs> so uh, we, we can't recommend yeah, the book. And they're, enough, they're all, but, uh, well, thank you, Steve. And, and, you know, they're, they're all, they're all, they all suffer different injuries. And as you noted, some of these guys were hurt very badly uh, and some of them not so much, you know, some of them, maybe they were, they were convalescing for a few weeks and they were back in the cockpit, but that's, that's only part of their, of the trauma they suffered. And, and it's, it's almost like, it's kind of weird, but it's, it's almost like the, the inverse of the physical trauma you suffered is the emotional trauma that you suffered. Uh, and, and I think there was that, that psychology there for a lot of these guys that they just, it's very difficult for, for, um, and, and I, I've not been in combat, so I can't, uh, you know, although I've been in the army, I've never been in combat. So I, I have not experienced this firsthand, but my observation is that, uh, for the guys that came back unscathed or, or with minor injuries, it's very difficult for them to get their head around the, the fact that, that their, their buddies were the ones that suffered the worst. And, and they can't, it's hard for them to accept. That's, that's really, really hard. Um, and, and so I, I found that interesting as well when I, was, when I was going through this war. And maybe that's where, you know, the, the Vietnam Wall is, is to some extent very helpful to this generation. And I, I mentioned that a few times in the book. But, uh, and also I, I had the opportunity to, to talk to Jan Scruggs, who's the founder of the Vietnam War, uh, War Memorial. Uh, uh, about the book as well, and I thanked him for for having uh, had the you know the courage and the foresight to really push that project through because I, I think most Vietnam vets uh, for them the ability to go and and to see those names and to touch the wall and and kind of um, release some of those feelings is helpful. But uh, and and I'm hoping that books like this, like Mended Wings, is also helpful in that regard as well. Well, we really appreciate your time this afternoon. We appreciate uh, the book, obviously. And, and, and again, Mended Wings, it, all of our listeners out there and our readers for softrep.com, please check this out. This is a great book. It's going to be a valued part of your military library out there. It's something you'll go back to when you're trying to research some of the stuff for uh, Vietnam era because uh, – all of these guys suffered. I think, w without a doubt, all of them had PTS when they came home. So, um, but before we go, I have to read our little blurb here. If you want to get soft rep on your phone, download our free mobile app and get easy access to our articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to our library of eBooks and our exclusive team room forums and content available on all your app, Apple and Android devices. 
Colin, thanks for taking the time with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. And uh, kudos to you uh, as a as a pilot yourself. I think you nailed it with this book. It was really, like I said, it was a page turner and and one that I really enjoyed reading. Well, thank you, Steve. And I, I commend everyone to my website if they'd like some more information about the book or, or about me. It's www.colin, C-O-L-I-N-P as in Paul, Cahoon, C-A-H-O-O-N.com. The best place to get mended wings would be on Amazon that, that you're, you're guaranteed to find it there. So I, I commend everybody to that. And I, I really appreciate the time to come on your show, Steve. I, I appreciate as a vet all you do for vets. And, uh, and I want to say thank you for your service as well. And, and thank you for your show. And thank you for, to uh, SoftRep for, for having me on today. Well, it was our pleasure, as I said before. But uh, yeah, to all our listeners out there, please check it out. And thanks for listening to our podcast, as always. Without our listeners and readers, we wouldn't have a site. So that's what, uh, that's what pays the bills and, and keeps us all going. So for all of us here at SoftRep Radio uh, and SoftRep.com, we want to thank all of you for listening. And our guest today, Colin Cahoon, will be back with another podcast real soon. Until then, SoftRep Radio on time, on target. We'll be back. been listening to soft rep radio i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico now i'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me monday to friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.